On February the 6th, 2016, the body of Ohio Wesleyan University freshman Luke Gabbard was found in a creek in Delaware. No one knows how he ended up in the water. Ohio Wesleyan News Journal, The Transcript, writes, Crescent moon had risen in the sky when Luke and a friend wandered back from Clancy's pub. Only one would make it back to the campus. Luke was found dead in a muddy stream, flowing near the college campus. His autopsy report says there were no obvious causes of death and his body showed no visible signs of trauma. Toxicology requests at the time would take up to two months. The transcript says they carried out their own investigation into the timeline of events surrounding his death. The night before, the freshman had made his pledge to fraternity. On his last night alive, the following night, he had been in the pub where, according to another new pledge of the fraternity who was with him, he had been asked to leave after being sick inside the pub. They left together, but on seeing a police car nearby, they apparently split up and went separate ways, for some reason worried about the police pulling them over for questioning. That was the last time anyone allegedly saw him alive. As well as some victims drowning in very shallow water, other victims are found in areas one would think are completely inaccessible. 7th of October 2010, officials confirmed that they'd recovered the body of missing Western University student Dwight Clark, who'd vanished 12 days earlier after leaving a party. He was discovered about one kilometre from the party in a log lagoon, which was gated and locked. His friends said he did not appear drunk when he left. Why and how would he have got into that private property in the first place? Oddly, a blank message was sent from his phone shortly after he disappeared. The location the message came from was an entirely different location to the one in which he was found. The official story from law enforcement is always that they have accidentally drowned, yet somehow and inexplicably they have often done this in very shallow water. They are according to the official versions, supposed to have walked miles or many blocks in the wrong direction until they reach a remote body of water and then drown. Curiously, some of them have been in towns they have never visited until that night, only to be found in remote ponds that they could never have known existed, nor the route taken to get to them. Alternately, they appear to have scaled fences or other difficult obstacles to get into remote ponds and then drowned in water that is no deeper than a couple of feet. Student Dan Zamlin was reported as a missing person on April the 5th, 2009. He'd been at a party, but his friends, who were at the party, said that he had left on his own to meet up with another friend at Minnesota University. They say he was talking with them on his cell phone, and was near the Mississippi River Boulevard and St. Clair Avenue. After he went missing, quickly bloodhounds, a helicopter and searchers covered the area where he'd been walking, but found no trace of him. In what's reminiscent of the terrifying phone call made by David Plunkett in Manchester, says she was talking to Dan when he began to become distressed. By then, she says she had left the party and got into her car to go and look for him. She says it took a really bad turn. Where are you, she asked him, and he said, oh my gosh, help. That was the last thing I heard, she says. His voice became distant as he said those words, as though he was moving away from his phone and then the line went dead. However, it has to be said that his parents have spoken out about the accuracy of statements made by his friends, particularly disputing the content of his last known call. Disturbingly, his mother also reported that there's significant evidence that the drinks at the party had been spiked with GHB. His father believes he was abducted. He said this to the House of Representatives.
He explained that although the bloodhounds seemed to get partial hits on his son's scent near the river, they kept stopping in the same place and did not actually go near the river, implying then that the dogs did not think he went in the water. His father also said that his own job was as an open pit miner, and he understood land, and when he walked the area that his son had been in, he did not believe someone could just accidentally slip into the water there, but that if they did, he said, it would have left marks, and no marks were found. His body was found a month later, in the river by a worker at the Ford Motor Plant, who was checking for debris around the plant's water intake filters. A baseball was found near the scene with a smiley face on it, as well as a sign that was marked with smiley face graffiti near the edge. His mother has stated victims of drowning usually surface within six and ten days after the drowning. The river was flowing four hundred times faster than normal, yet Dan's body didn't surface for another twenty-seven days and flowed only for two miles. She says the coroner could not determine a hundred percent that he did drown, just that that was where he was found. Crucially, she also reports that the night before he disappeared, he was at a club in the centre of town. He was thrown out because he was not wearing the right wristband. She says he was separated from his friends and later he told his friends that he was approached by men outside. He said that he ran from these people. Sound familiar? Maybe he was supposed to have his tragic accident that night, but even though very intoxicated, in quotation marks, he was able to outrun these people. One link that really stands out is that very often the young men who go missing have been kicked out of clubs and bars and left to wander the streets, often without the means of getting home. Often their coats have been left inside the bars, with their keys and wallets inside. There is also, very often, the common factor that they've been talking on their cell phones when their calls have suddenly cut off. With reference to the victims being kicked out of the bars, is this case of negligence or duty of care in the case of Dorman, or is there something more sinister going on in terms of collusion and cooperation between them and the as yet unidentified gang allegedly stalking and abducting these men? In several cases afterward, it's been found that although the young men have been kicked out, there was no evidence of them causing a disturbance or fight or even being that drunk. In other words, there was no real reason to throw them out. Take the case of Shane Montgomery, a student at Westchester who was escorted out of a bar in Maniunk, Pennsylvania, on Thanksgiving 2014, after accidentally tripping into the DJ deck. His body was found five weeks later, in a part of the river close to the bar, where search divers had thoroughly and repeatedly searched. The implication here then being that he was not in the river for all the time that he'd been missing. He was also found in water, just three to four feet deep which would surely seem a little shallow to drown in. Unusually in this case, the FBI quickly became involved in the investigation searching for him, and some have asked why did they get involved. Curiously, it has since been reported that the bar involved stated that there was no disturbance inside the bar, and he was not escorted out, so they say. In another case, Nick Wilcox was out celebrating the New Year in 2013 in Milwaukee. His girlfriend later said that they had met some new people in the bar, hung out with them, and that when Nick was kicked out of the bar, one of the new crowd, a young man, had left with him. By the time she was able to get outside of the packed bar to join him, her boyfriend had disappeared. 
A medical examiner's report indicated he was found about 300 feet from where he was last seen, and cell phone records obtained by police show the last ping on his phone was close to where his body was discovered. Nick Wilcox was found with his cell phone, a set of keys and his wallet containing his driver's license. He'd been missing more than 80 days, yet he was found less than 500 feet from where he disappeared. Bodies surface in water within about 10 days usually. So where had his body been? It couldn't have been in the water. His family do not believe what happened to him was an accident. Take the case of 28-year-old Thomas Hecht, who also disappeared in Milwaukee on the 10th of March 2012 after joining his friends in the St. Patrick's Day pub crawl. His body wasn't found in the river for nearly two weeks. He lived within walking distance of the bar, which he left at just after 9pm. He never made it back to his apartment. Celtic crosses were taken for many of the early victims, as well as many of them having religious jewellery taken. Sometimes there have been unknown people nearby, people that have not been identified. Then they're simply gone. In Columbus, Ohio, Joey LeBoot had been missing for almost a month. He vanished on March the 5th, 2017. He'd been spending the evening with a cousin, Kyle Regal, and his cousin's wife in the Union Cafe in the short north part of Columbus. He left the table they were sitting at saying that he was going to go to the bar to get a drink. He never came back to the table. When he disappeared, many people were instantly reminded of Brian Schaefer, who also disappeared in the same way, in the same month almost ten years ago. He vanished while inside a club, just like Joey LeBoot did. He even looked quite like Joey. Though both the CCTV in the bar Joey was drinking in and in the club where Brian Schaefer was drinking were both scrutinised, neither man was seen leaving. Joey was 26 years old and held down a responsible job at Morgan Stanley. On the night he disappeared, he'd parked his car nearby some residential apartments called Thurber Gate and walked with his cousin and cousin's wife to the bar. Just after midnight, his cousin Kylie decided they wanted to go home, but he couldn't find Joey. They waited for ten minutes or so, then began to text him to find out where he was. Joey didn't answer the text, and they didn't hear back from him. He never returned to his table. His female cousin, who was also there, called him after none of them could understand where he'd gone. He answered his phone, and he told her he was driving. Perhaps that's not so strange. Maybe he had a disagreement with one of them. Maybe he needed some air or some space. The thing was, after he vanished into thin air, the police found his car still parked in the same spot he'd left it in. If he was driving, he wasn't in his own car. He'd also sent a text message to a member of his family while also apparently in the car, but the message didn't make any sense, said his cousin. Later, when it became abundantly clear that their cousin had vanished, the text message was released to the media. All it said was, J-N-H-S-T-I-O-J, all in one word. Nearly a month later, his body was found in a river search. His family spoke to the media, stressing how out of character it would be for Joey to just get up and leave and not come back. He held down a responsible job, was devoted to his family, and had shown no signs to any of them that there was anything whatsoever wrong in his personal life that could have caused him to take such drastic steps as to walk out of a bar, leave his life behind, and never come back. His family created flyers, and along with friends and volunteers, everyone handed them out across town, desperate for any news on where he was. They couldn't understand his text message, and they couldn't understand why he said he was driving, and now they couldn't understand where he was. 
In hindsight, though many would not have openly said it, the most logical explanation was that he was in someone else's car and was being taken somewhere against his will. The person, or people who were taking him, most likely told him to answer his phone when it rang, to give them time to do what they wanted to do to him, without arousing any more suspicion. They probably wanted him to let his family know he was okay, and yet, just by the fact that he hardly spoke, and then he sent a strange text message, which surely seemed to imply he was being forced to do something, forced to answer the phone and appear as normal as possible, to ensure that his family did not immediately call the police. It bought his killer's time. One can only imagine the terror that had to be going through his mind at the time, knowing that he could not say what was happening to him, hoping that his captors would free him if he went along with what they told him to do, knowing he had no choice. On the other hand, his mind may not have been functioning at all. The reason he could not text properly may have been because the drug slipped into his drink or injected into him had kicked in. When a body was found in the Seattle River on March 29th, spokesman for the police, Sergeant David Sillian, said that it was a male in his twenties and that he believed it was a suspicious death. He said, I can't tell you the extent of this suspiciousness, but we have a male in his twenties and we don't know why he died. We made a preliminary examination of the body with the coroner, and the body has now been taken to the county coroner for autopsy. We're treating it as a suspicious death. He said, my understanding of it is that the dive team came out early this morning. As part of the special victims unit, they were checking into missing persons and they wanted to check the bodies of water. My understanding is that the team came out late morning to do a systematic search of this particular body of water. It doesn't seem like the body was too decomposed. It seemed in relatively good condition. I can't comment on any wounds, but like I said, we believe it's suspicious death. He wouldn't be drawn on whether the man's wallet and ID were still on him. Theodore Decker for the Columbus Dispatch reported the next day that there is a high probability that Joey was already dead when he entered the river, and according to the Franklin coroner, it was the body of Joey. The dispatch said the coroner said there was no water in Laboot's lungs, which could mean he was dead before he went into the river. Franklin County Coroner Dr. Oritz said an autopsy found no signs of external injuries. The coroner said, We cannot determine with 100% accuracy. However, it does appear there's a high probability that he was dead prior going into the water. For the family of this young man, perhaps there's some comfort in the fact that unlike the overwhelming majority of the other possibly 300 cases just like this one, the police this time are at least prepared to accept that something is not right here and are officially treating it as suspicious. Of course, the primary factor in this will be because Joey does not appear to have accidentally drowned, which is most often the official cause of death in all the other cases. He didn't die in the water, he died before. He was killed elsewhere and then placed in the water, just like some of the very early cases such as Chris Jenkins, Patrick O'Neill, Todd Guy. In Jolie Boot's case, the coroner said that there was no external traumatic injuries. He was not shot, stabbed or beaten to death then. Was he drowned elsewhere? No, because there was no water in his lungs. How else could he have died? The possible answer could be that he was suffocated. When his body was found, the police already suspected it was the missing man because he was still wearing the same clothes he'd last been in. Although the detective first said that the body didn't appear too badly decomposed, the coroner later said that the condition of his body made identification impossible. How long then was he in the water? From the coroner's statement, it would seem that he had been in the water quite a while. Whether he died on the night he was taken or in one of the following days, we don't yet know. If he did not die on the night he went missing, that implies that he was taken and held elsewhere, again like some of the earlier cases. Joey had received a text message from a man he'd gone on a few dates with, 
It was earlier in the night before he disappeared at around 10.15pm. Joey replied to the text, but when his friend sent several other texts over that night and in the early hours of the next morning, he received no replies from Joey. Many have speculated on the meaning of Joey's last text sent at 1.22am. Could it have been a crucial clue as to what was happening to him? It was sent over an hour after he disappeared. J-N-H-S-T-I-O-J was all it said. On a Facebook page for the local news station, people began to try to work out what it was he'd been trying to say. The text message looks like Johnston or Johnstown, said one. There's a Johnstown road in Gahana, and it runs up to and through the city of Johnstown. Somebody else said, I looked on Google Maps. There is a John Street about three miles away from Union in Columbus. On maps, it looks like it's a big construction site and pretty isolated. Maybe they should search there. Others said it looks like he was trying to type Union Station. Others said when you type the word into the phone, it autocorrects to Kingston. Others said when they type those letters in, the phone autocorrects itself, so actually the chance of it sending those letters put together in that order could be slim, and unless he'd actually meant to do it, they said, well, you have to actually click on all those letters if you want to send those exact letters in the message. The idea was perhaps he was trying to text landmarks, but the thoughts also became darker. Someone said if he was struggling to use the phone and had to be quick about it, he probably just texted any letters to whatever name his fingers could land on. If he was in the car and didn't want to get caught using his phone, he must have been secretly trying to text. What if he was texting behind his back or he was blindfolded? Another person said, I think it looks like a bad swipe or voice to text of, I'm a hostage. A local man called Jeff Randall also commented, I saw a kid roughly the same age and everything and looked exactly like Joey Laboot that night, morning, at High and Vine, the Columbus-based rock group. He said he needed $16 for a Greyhound ticket to get home to Florence, Kentucky. He said he'd been on the streets on Columbus for five days, but that was a lie because the exact same dude stopped me and asked me the exact same thing about one month before, outside some apartments by the pedestrian bridge. He didn't look homeless either. He had the exact same features. I called the police and told them, if I see him again, I'll update, but I don't plan on being out too much. Others doubt this man's story, and so he continues to try and persuade them. He said there's a lot of people pretend they're homeless in that area. They make a good living, especially when drunks hand them money. And if there's a large event or a larger crowd, it's very lucrative. The man who looked so much like him was sort of stressed and emotional. He was almost tearful when he walked away. What could this mean? Perhaps nothing, but maybe it's worth knowing that a group who called themselves the Dealers of Death in Minnesota confessed to killing Chris Jenkins, as well as many others who were found dead in rivers in the same area. And this group were comprised of homeless young men. The so-called leader of the gang, Jeremy Alford, said that he and his gang had killed Chris Jenkins and up to 40 more men. They've never been convicted and perhaps they were just fabricating when they confessed. But this kind of illustrates a potential profile type for the killers. Curiously, Dee Piles, when contributing to the GoFundMe donation site for Joey before he was found, also said, I think the text reads hostage. I don't know this young man, but I find the whole thing quite disturbing. I was watching the coverage on 10TV 6pm news on the 3rd and noticed something very strange. The couple behind the reporter at the Union Cafe look very similar to the couple seen on the escalator with Brian Schaefer ten years ago. Again, how could this possibly be? Or perhaps more importantly, why would that be? Curiously, and perhaps again not related, but one day after Joey's body was discovered, the Columbus police posted on their Facebook page, Police gear stolen, please share. 
Last night, some time before 11.30pm, two officers had their vehicle windows broken and gear stolen. The police vehicle had been parked up when it was broken into, and two police uniforms as well as radio communication equipment were stolen. Perfect, then, for anyone who wants to pretend to be police officers. A perfect disguise. So again, it's another possibility. In Chris Jenkins' case, who disappeared on Halloween night in downtown Minneapolis, there is a conundrum. Not only was his scent tracked to somewhere he would never have been, in the grounds of the Abbey, where Joshua Gimon's scent was also detected, that someone confessed to killing Chris Jenkins, and many more young men too. The leader of the supposed cult called the Dealers of Death, now in prison for life, had said that he had killed him, with his gang, and forty more men. The private detective was not necessarily inclined to believe his story, however, for a number of reasons. The forensic evidence also didn't corroborate this story. The police who worked on this case also did not support the confession, though, although they had said that the death was accidental until many years later, when the family finally got them to agree that it was a homicide. Jeremy Alford was said to have been attempting to recruit a vagabond group of misfits together in order to create a gang that would take war to the streets. While the verdict on the existence and involvement of this gang appears to be very open, his sister has said years ago, as far as belonging to a gang, no, he's full of big talk but that's all it is to make his friends think he's something. There was that strange missing persons poster in the case of Chris Jenkins that was found on the memorial day. One of his missing persons posters had been written over and it said loaded into SUV paid in dollars green. Well, James Rothstein was once an NYPD detective. He served in the police for over 40 years. He's now mayor of St. Martin's in Minnesota. He is of the firm belief that human trafficking is a flourishing business. He's talked consistently and extensively of his investigations into human trafficking and abduction and points it to elite paedophile rings being at the top of the chain as well as low-level satanic groups. From his own undercover operations while in the MIPD, he says kids were being grabbed to satisfy the twisted depravity of very powerful individuals who have the money. You could order one of these kids. It was $2,500 up front in some cases. These people would hand that money out like it was candy. I can tell you without doubt that there was a man the agency assigned to investigate this because they were afraid it would go back to other cases. There were 1,500 victims. In fact, not only does he believe that human trafficking could be behind the so-called smiley face killings, but he says he has evidence that at least two of the son of Sam shooters are now residing in his area. And he says, astonishingly, that they are responsible for some of these smiley face killings. Well, if this sounds too far-fetched, artists' impressions drawn at the time of the Son of Sam shootings always seem to indicate that there was more than one person involved in the shooting of young people on the streets and in their cars in New York City in the summer of 76. Retired Jim Rothstein, now the mayor, says he knows and he can ID two Son of Sam killers in his state who have done some of the smiley face killings. Is he right? The information would surely be very dangerous to know. And of course, when Rothstein was enmeshed in this world as a detective, he was convinced that it was intrinsically linked to other organisations too. He means that this was funded and organised. His implication then is that it's probably most likely that these drowning deaths are the result of a very organised high-level group who are happy to let it appear that those behind it are a bunch of Satanists or a cult group, or that they actively encourage it and are involved in it. At the very least, the implication is they are allowed to get away with it in full knowledge of what's being done. 
Perhaps it's merely camouflaged to look like Satanism, with the graffiti of crowns and horns being left near the bodies. Infamous serial killer Henry Lee Lucas claimed, among other bizarre things, that he had carried out murders for a cult organization that operated across the American South and Southwest that was called the Hand of Death Cult. He said, for initiation, you would have to go out and kill someone. The cult killed by contract and performed ritual cremations and crucifixions of humans to promote reincarnation of the devil. Lucas and his killing companion, Otis Toole, had been talking about the cult for some months by this stage. Lucas said the organisation had members all over the country. He said the killings were done in the orders of the cult and that they would provide him with a vehicle and money in order to go and get the job done. He said that the body of the victim would often be marked with a cross or other symbol. Lucas claimed that he would abduct children for the cult too and that the final destination was Juarez, Mexico where they were used in child pornography, snuff films and ritual black mass sacrifices. Lucas claimed that he was trained to become this contract cult killer in the swamplands of the Florida Everglades. He confessed that his first kill for the cult was at the training grounds itself, where he was tasked with killing a young black trainee who his superiors deemed had betrayed his oath to the group. He said there were several hundred trainees there, with more than 50% being women. Well, is this in any way possible? Particularly as he's saying so many women were involved with it, or was he just making it all up? How likely is it that women would even consider participating in something like this and in that number? And yet, women are seen as possible suspects in some of the US cases primarily for their ability to act as honey traps to lure young men outside of bars. Lucas told interviews, he said they would also kidnap teenagers who would be used, they were drugged, then used in making pornography that would then be distributed. Is he simply lying? It's highly probable. Although it's interesting that the same alleged cult, the Hand of Death, was also referred to by Charles Manson and David Berkowitz, son of Sam, as being the real organisers behind their crimes too. Are they all lying? Is the retired NYPD detective Jim Rothstein, now the mayor of St. Martin, Minnesota, then right in his opinion about being able to name some of the smiley face killers? Some people have said it's juggalos. Although any crimes that have been reported by supposed or alleged juggalo members have often been quite messy. Although there is an FBI report, and I noticed a paragraph in it where it says that in one state, a kind of loosely characterised juggalo gang were holding their own against MS-13. Well, that would be quite a feat. When this was first happening, and people were taken to forums to discuss it, and somebody had put a post about the company called Train, which has contracts with many colleges, apparently, and is a refrigeration company. And they said, what about R22, a chlorodofluoromethane gas, commonly used as a refrigerant? Well, maybe that could be used to knock someone out, and if inhaled, it can make you dizzy and disoriented. There's been so many serial killers who've been long-haul truck drivers. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that a trucker working for a truck company of some kind who has contracts with colleges could be abducting some of these. And of course we had the agent, the retired federal agent, who traced a trucker from Manhattan to the Midwest. It doesn't seem to be that it's actually just one big group. There's a lot of information that I can't actually give away. I would not wish to give the game away.